This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. When we think about the significant moments in our lives, we mostly only have our memories to guide us. But for Deputy Ronnie Durrell, the four minutes that changed his life are recorded on video. In the video, Durrell hears over the police radio about a dangerous man driving an RV. We were told that he was a he was suicidal. He had an AK-47 and a nine millimeter, and he was intoxicated and that his wife had said that he is ready to have a shootout with the cops. Seconds later, that's when you just start hearing gunshots. Go. Can I drive? I'm taking your car. And so I just start take off running towards the north parking lot. The video comes from a police body camera strapped to Darrell's chest. Camera is shaking as he and a fellow officer jump into a police car. Hey. Hey, I'm getting in the back. Open it up. It's open. Don't kill me, bro. Actually, whoa, whoa, watch out. Over the radio, they heard that the man in the RV has already shot someone back at his house. And I knew at that point it was an officer down. He later learned that the injured man was Douglas County Sheriff's Detective Dan Bright. What kind of car is it? What? It's an RV, big white RV. So as I'm approaching, I come around the curve. That's when the Parker officer airs shots fired. So I throw the car in park. Um, I get out and I have to let my buddy out of the back seat. Let me out. Subject had uh, ultimately it high centered the RV and started shooting out of his RV. As I'm approaching, I see this big Ford like excursion and the driver doors open. And so I immediately knew. I said, "Okay, that's that's my point of cover. That's where I'm going to go." And as I approach the truck, the subject fires two shots towards me. Uh, So I aimed at his uh, head and I pulled the trigger once. I didn't know what effect it had, but I knew that I had hit him because I could see his body drop. So we approached the RV and um, it ended up being a fatal shot. The whole call, I think, lasted about three minutes, um, but it seemed like a lifetime. New developments as police release body camera video from an officer who shot and killed a man in Parker. Law enforcement commend Officer Durrell for stopping the threat and having presence of mind in a chaotic situation. 
Body cam video shows a Parker police officer stopping a man who witnesses and police say was firing at everything around him. Durrell and his partner were the only ones right here at this site when an active shooter threatened a nearby school, assisted living facility, and a full hospital. To be able to stop yourself, take in that sight picture, slow your breathing, and pull that trigger one time, that was just an amazing shot. So this is where the public version of this story ends. Hero Cop kills an active shooter with one shot. But the body cameras kept rolling that day. 212 Cruiser 6, come with me. It's okay. It's okay as you can be. Huh? All right. Yeah. Okay. I want you to secure your weapon. Keep it the way it is. Don't alter it. Don't do anything. It's now evidence. I'd like you to put it in a trunk. Okay. Okay? Yep. You don't leave him. The video shows Darrell sitting in the passenger seat of a police car. He's not saying much besides asking for something to drink. You can see the adrenaline dump, which is I'm trying to put the cap on the water bottle, and my, my hand's shaking so bad I can't put the cap on. All right. You sure? Yeah. yeah. Everybody keeps coming up to me and asking if I'm okay. What can I do for you, brother? I just start having tears come down my face. Because then I was just like... I just killed this guy. I'm Brittany Freeman. I'm a producer for a television program called Insight with John Ferrugia. It's on Rocky Mountain PBS in Denver, Colorado. Our newest TV program is called Breakdown. It has stories from all over Colorado showing what happens when people who are in a mental health crisis have the police called on them. We have responded so many times to suicidal parties. Shoot me! No, don't do it. And people with mental health disorders. Kristen, come out here. That law enforcement is synonymous with mental health now. In reporting that story, we've learned that these incidents can have really terrible consequences, both for the people in crisis and for people in law enforcement, like Deputy Ronnie Durrell. That's how my colleague, photojournalist Jason Foster, found himself attending a crisis intervention training with Ronnie. And I remember thinking I'd just get a little B-roll of him being trained. What I didn't realize at the time was that he actually presents at this two-day training seminar to other police officers with his wife. And um, I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of unique. I'm Ronnie Durrell. I'm a Douglas or a deputy with Douglas County Sheriff's Office. Um, some of you know me, some of you know what I've gone through. For others that don't, this is uh, my story. So I'm recording his presentation and about five minutes in, you know, he kind of starts talking about exactly what we had talked about uh, in the interview that we'd shot with him, you know, two weeks prior. So that night, I didn't sleep. I laid in bed, just kind of tossed around. And then uh, the nightmare started coming. I, I, I just don't sleep very much. I keep listening and I, what I realize is he's actually kind of telling the story about how all of these events affected him personally. And I ended up staying for the entire presentation and I was just so like emotionally moved. You know, all of the interviews that I've done with, you know, deputies and police officers over the years, I've never stopped to think about how these events, whether it's, you know, killing an, a mentally ill person, 
you know, whether it was justified, he, he saved lives by killing those people. Um, you never stop to think about how their life moves on from there. You know, how does the police officer sleep that night? You know, I think what I've learned since is they usually don't. So today on the Insight Podcast, Jason and I are digging in a little deeper on this issue. We started by sitting down with Ronnie and his wife, Stephanie. You need to count to 10, Ronnie? One, two, three, four. Your turn. One, two, three, four. How did you guys meet? (laughs) That's actually a funny story. I love funny stories. (laughs) Do you want me to tell it? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Would you like to tell your version or my version or? <laughs> so we both uh, were students at CSU. And so I had friends that lived on her floor and I'd go up there and whatnot. never met her. And, you know, but just like every other college kid, they had a bunch of pictures and everything on their doors and whatnot. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I was like, she's cute. And, you know, I want to get to know her. So I just walked into her dorm room one day and I was like, hey, and introduced myself through my door. <laughs> And introduce myself, and we, you know, we just started talking. Uh, asked her out on a couple dates. She turned me down because uh, she thought I was just your typical jock. And so I was like, okay. And then we had quite a few mutual friends. Yeah. And so we went out one night, all of us together, and we just kind of hit it off. And then the rest That's is history. history. Ronnie and Stephanie got married after college, and they both became police officers. Stephanie is a Douglas County Sheriff's detective, and she started assisting with crisis intervention training in her department. That's when she first encountered the issue of officer mental health. And so trying to find suicide statistics um, for um, the first responder community was actually very difficult. And really even finding anything at all on police suicide was, there was very minimal stuff out there, and I felt like I really had to just go through site after site or video after video, just trying to find um, something. At this point, the Durrells didn't have any personal experience with the negative mental health impacts of the job. But then came the four minutes that changed Ronnie's life and Stephanie's too. So I aimed at his uh, head and I pulled the trigger once. That was just an amazing shot. I was on light duty at the time because I was seven months pregnant with our second child. And so I was working a Monday through Thursday schedule, so I was off on that Friday. So I got a call from his sergeant saying that um, he had been involved in an officer-involved shooting um, and that he was okay. And basically this was his personal phone number and to call him if I needed anything. And that was pretty much it. As soon as Ronnie fired that shot and killed the gunman, an officer-involved shooting investigation began. He asked for a lawyer and spent hours at the police station, being photographed for evidence. His attorney told him he couldn't really talk to anyone about what happened, except the investigators and Stephanie. So when I got home, I asked if she wanted to know to just, um, A, kind of get it off my chest a little bit, because I can't talk to anybody about it besides my lawyer. Um, but to also kind of maybe put her mind at ease that way, you know, her imagination could be far worse than what actually transpired. 
I had heard so many different things of what had happened and I wanted to know actually what happened. And so he did, he told me everything that had occurred. And so I, I told her everything. She's like, okay, like I have to go to bed. Like I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so she went to sleep and then I just kind of stayed up all night. Yeah. I couldn't sleep. You kind of start thinking about what it is that you did and, you know, kind of what you remember because there's, there's so many things to remember. You're like, okay, did, did that happen first or second? So you just start thinking about the whole situation and it just kind of goes on replay and you just start watching it over and over in your head. Ronnie was on leave while the district attorney investigated the shooting. At one point, he had to go into work to do a debrief to talk about the incident with other officers who were on the scene and a police psychologist. So he'd pulled me aside before the debrief and he's like, how are you doing? And I said, what we always say, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And he would ask, how are you sleeping? Uh, you know, okay, not great, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping okay. Mm-hmm. And so it really didn't get too much more than that at that time. He says he did go to see the psychologist one more time on a supervisor's suggestion. We're cops. We are supposed to have all the answers. We're the alphas. We're not supposed to be affected by what we see or do, you know. And so I went and saw him and I would BS my way through the, uh, the session. And I didn't really go back. I, I, I didn't give it a fair shake, essentially. I just wanted to go do it because I was, you know, told, hey, I would encourage you to go do this. I was never mandated to go. But that way I can at least go back to my department and say, yeah, I went and talked to him. And so I did. And, um, but I was clear to go back uh, to work two weeks later. Do you, do you think you were ready to go back at that point? Um, it's a double-sided would, question. Yeah, so <laughs> I would say yes and no. Um, you wanted be, to. I wanted to because I, that incident, I mean, my, my team and I, we had worked together for about a year and a half up to that point. And so we were very close knit. And then that incident just made us family. And so I wanted to be back for my, my team. Um, looking back on it, should I have gone back? Should I have gone and sought psych services and really kind of had a better like self-reflection? Yeah, I should have. And I probably shouldn't have gone back at that time. The legal process of clearing Ronnie to go back to work really only focused on whether he was justified to shoot. And he was. There wasn't really a lot of focus on his mental well-being. And he says he realizes now that he was suffering. I was angry all the time. I would take it out on my wife. I would take it out on my kids. And it was stupid stuff. I look back on it now, like, you hear the saying, you know, crying over spilled milk. I would lose my mind if my daughter spilled milk, juice, whatever. I would just go from zero to 100. And because I'd never dealt with anything. I was just keeping everything bottled up. The trauma piled up in his everyday job. Ronnie says he saw grisly car crashes and motorcycle crashes. And a few days before Christmas, he responded to a child's death. And just a few days after that, he fired his gun on the job for a second time. So it was 
So it was uh, December 31st of 2017. Um, I was at home. It was a Sunday morning. I just got Ronnie responded with the SWAT team to an apartment where a gunman was firing through the walls. Ronnie and other officers shot the gunman, killing him. But not before the gunman killed Deputy Zach Parrish. And I looked down and I saw Zach. It's a sight I don't wish anybody have to see. Uh, at that time, I knew he was beyond help. Um, yeah, so that image, like, I can cl- see it clear as day right now, sitting here. And um, it's, it's something I don't wish on anybody. Um, it's something that I think is, causes a lot of trauma. So after my first shooting, I always had nightmares of officers down. I was always running somewhere, but the officer would always be down. There was nothing that would change it. After my second, I was having nightmares of uh, almost like still images, and it would be of Zach. I'd wake up sweating, kind of almost in a panic. Uh, I would never wake up my wife and tell her anything because I didn't want to worry her. I didn't want her worrying about me. At work, you know, it was hard because not only had he just been in another shooting, we'd also lost Deputy Parrish, and and I don't. I would say I don't think I ever properly dealt with that. I just remember driving around in my patrol car and doing on in, what they call increased patrols, like in a, at a school or um, at a business. And I just remember sitting in the back, just crying um, in my patrol car by myself because it was the only time that I had to myself to feel or deal with what was going on. Because at home, again, I was trying to do the same thing, protecting him, protecting the kids. Um, When he was irritable and angry, it was like walking on eggshells. Like you're just trying not to stir anything up. Um, And again, it was just kind of playing that whole same thing over again. And after that, I was like, what am I doing? So I actually called Christine Bright and said, Um, I I really need some help. Christine Bright is married to Dan Bright, the detective who was injured in Ronnie's first shooting incident. She is also a law enforcement officer, and she helps Stephanie to go see a therapist. But Ronnie preferred to talk to his coworkers about his problems. And so I'd meet up with them, and they would just, they wouldn't pry. They would just say, hey, you kind of seem a little off today. And, you know, are you okay? Is there anything I can do? And, you know, these two people in particular, I felt very comfortable talking to and I would talk to them. Um, I've been emotional in front of them more so than probably you. (laughs) And it was, you know, it was just one of those things where, yeah, I would talk to them, but it wasn't, you know, they didn't have all the tools and all the answers. You know, they were a great soundboard, um, which is great. And it's great to have those. I think it came to a point where I was like, that's not helping anymore. Like, that's not helping you, and it's not helping us at home either. So I really started kind of, um, I'll call it nagging, I'll say it's nagging, um, and pushing him to go see somebody. But he didn't want to. Ronnie says it took more than a year for him to realize he needed help. It took another critical incident. Ronnie was called to the home of an off-duty officer who killed himself in front of him. And so um, I got home and she, you know, again, asked how I was doing. I said, again, I'm fine. 
And she's like, no, you're not. She's, and she essentially just called me on my BS. And she's like, you're not okay. She's like, you've experienced far too much too soon. And um, a few days later, we had Dan Bright and, his, uh, and Christine Bright over. And they knew, and I think you were probably having some back-end conversations with Christine. And uh, was like, Maybe hey. We, we can discuss that later. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I started talking with uh, Dan. And Dan had started being more open with his struggles that he went through after his shooting. And so I started talking with him and he asked me, he's like, are you doing okay? And finally I just dropped my armor essentially. And I said, no, I said, I'm not. Ronnie says he probably wouldn't have gotten help without the influence of Dan Bright. And we learned that Stephanie secretly helped arrange that crucial conversation. I did talk to Christine about <laughs> I said, okay, I'm waving the white flag. Like, and I just said, I need Dan's help. I said, I need him to talk to Ronnie. And I don't think you ever knew that. So it's now on a podcast. <laughs> but I didn't, but my nagging and my pushing and my, I said, I didn't, I don't know what else to do. And, um, you know, talking to Christine about it, she really, you know, said that I think Dan really wanted to have that conversation with you as well. And, mm-hmm. To help, to help him out. Dan gave Ronnie some numbers, and he made an appointment with a public safety psychologist. So when I walked in, um, she's like, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm Sarah Metz," and I said, "Hi, I'm Ronnie Durrell." She goes, "Yeah, I know who you are." She goes, "I've been waiting um, to see you." She goes, "I was wondering how long it would take for you to come in." I think it's just having somebody to talk to that doesn't. I would say doesn't completely know you in that sense that, you know, um, sometimes I kind of refer to him as like, you know, kind of that third person or that referee, right? That maybe, maybe your family, I think, can tell you things or say things to you and you can bounce it off or, you know, take it in or whatever. But I think it's somebody else just looking at you from a different perspective and just saying, well, you know, yeah, that's okay. Or no, that's not okay. Maybe, you know, we can try and do this a little bit differently. So going to like a specific uh, psych services that is first responder oriented, they may not physically experience it, but they can empathize with what it is that we're, we're dealing with. Um, you know, some have spouses in law enforcement, so they get it a little bit more than others. Um, but it's like, like Stephanie said, it's having that person to just listen um, to call you out if you need to be called out on stuff. Um, but it's still stuff that I work on to this day. Like it's not, you know, I'm not a hundred percent. I'm, I'm not the same person that I was September 1st of 2016 as I am today. And I probably will never be that same person, but it's how do you take care of yourself and to deal with what it is that you're experiencing. While we've been working on this story, we've learned that some departments don't require counseling sessions for officers who've been involved in critical incidents, like a shooting. It took too long for me to go see somebody. I wish somebody made me go and talk to somebody. I wish somebody would said, hey, three sessions before you're able to come back to the street. 
The Durrells and the Brights are helping to lead an effort in their sheriff's department to focus on officer wellness. That's what led Ronnie to share his story at the presentation, where Jason saw him speak to a crowd of his fellow officers. I appreciate your guys' time. If there's anything I could ever do for either one of you or any of you, just email me. It's probably the best way to get in touch. Thank you. This conversation that they had with us is a conversation that they're having with law enforcement all over the state. Yeah. They're putting on these presentations and telling their story and really being vulnerable. Did you get a feeling when you were in that room that it was maybe hard for someone like Ronnie to just be standing up there talking about his feelings for like an hour to a bunch of other cops? Yes, but you can also tell that he's really passionate about getting officers to talk about this, you know, and who better to talk about it than him? The one message that you can tell that Stephanie and Ronnie really, really want to get out is that everybody needs to be talking about this. That's how we prevent, you know, more police officer suicides. That's how we teach other officers to, you know, to get help is to talk about it, to create a safe space where everybody can kind of talk about what they're going through. On the next episode of Insight, Colorado lawmakers are talking about this topic too, after a high-profile tragedy involving a police shooting. Just a little more than four weeks before Monday's shooting, the same Aurora officer was involved in another middle-of-the-night confrontation. That one also ended in gunfire and the death of a suspect. I believe this officer was, was, uh, was ready to go back. So what does the law require police departments to do after an officer is involved in a shooting? A new law is just taking effect in Colorado, but some say it doesn't go far enough. That's next time on the Insight Podcast. This episode of the Insight Podcast is a production of Rocky Mountain Public Media. It was produced by Jason Foster and me, Brittany Freeman. Our audio editor is Jason Patton. Our story editor is Paul Caroli. Additional support provided by Lizzie Goldsmith and the rest of the team at House of Pod. Thanks also to our Insight team at Rocky Mountain PBS. Our VP of Journalism is Laura Frank. Our managing editor is John Ferrugia. Our photojournalist is Jason Foster. Our TV episode was produced by Phil Maravilla. Our director of content is Sam Cohen. And our CEO is Amanda Mountain. You can watch our television program and more of our video interviews with Deputy Ronnie Durrell and Detective Dan Bright on our website, rmpbs.org. Be sure to subscribe to Insight at Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our members at Rocky Mountain PBS. If you like what you heard, please support us by becoming a member at rmpbs.org.